Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. What does uh, what does India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi have in common with uh, the President of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, as well as the Scottish National Party and Alternative for Germany, another party that is based in Germany? Well, here to tell us is Vernon Silver, Projects and Investigations Reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us from Rome. Vernon, I'm going to let you tell people, what do, uh, what do all four of these uh, different political uh, connections have in common? They've all gotten advice in elections from Facebook, from a special unit uh, within the company that focuses on politics and governments and has apparently increasingly participated in helping in electioneering. This is an amazing story. I highly recommend everyone read it. This Facebook team helps regimes that reach out and crack down. Um, Vernon, do we have a sense of the financials here of how much Facebook earns from helping these campaigns to disseminate their message as widely as possible on social media? What's what's interesting about this is how small the direct numbers are. You know, in some of these campaigns, uh, they were only spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on these campaigns. But as Facebook has learned through the last few election cycles, um, these are big events. Elections are big events that rank alongside the Super Bowl and the Olympics in terms of drawing black, black blockbuster ad dollars from elsewhere. You know, stuff that other participants are bringing into the conversation, and more importantly boost engagement, which is sort of the, the key metric at Facebook that includes, you know, how many people are clicking how many times and sharing how many times. And so if you get a party in Germany or the Philippines that's spending hundreds of thousands, um, you might end up seeing a multiplier effect. And that's what they've really tuned into. So Vernon, can you give us some details about what encouraging engagement means? What does it mean to help these campaigns? What did this unit actually do? Well, it started out, this unit started in Europe, servicing the Middle East after the Arab Spring, talking to new leaders, transitional governments, trying to let them know what this new tool was, Facebook. I mean, this is just a few years ago. Facebook did not have the 2 billion users that it had. And then a few years ago, they started staffing up in Washington, and they did so with people who came from political campaign backgrounds. And what they started doing was taking the traditional pitch like, you know, hey, campaign X and Y, because they were helping everybody in every race that they went to deal with. Um, In addition to verifying you as an authentic Facebook user, helping you figure out how to use the basic tools and leaving you the campaign to do it, they started getting more engaged to the point where in the last election in the U.S., there were Facebook employees embedded with the Trump campaign. And, you know, even in local elections, we saw that some in the U.S. were being offered uh, collaboration on testing different video formats with Facebook. So the collaborative nature uh, grew. And that's what the issue is that some of the critics are having. Can you explain uh, or maybe just give a little uh, sort of story about uh, Katie Harbath 
and Elizabeth Linder. Who are these two individuals? It's, it's interesting. Elizabeth Linder um, started the unit. She was based in London for Facebook. She was a very early Facebook employee, and she started sort of as an ambassadorial figure, making the rounds in Europe and the Middle East and Africa, um, helping introduce people to the tools. And she would just sort of leave them there with them, and she would make a presentation to the candidates on the right and the candidates on the left, and that was it. Uh, but then a few years in, um, Katie Harbath is hired, and she's a former Republican strategist who worked on Rudy Giuliani's 2008 uh, presidential campaign. And things started changing, among other things, that Katie became the the global leader of this politics and government unit within Facebook, uh, which is a small unit, at most, you know, maybe 100 or something people during a, a peak election time. And according to what Elizabeth Linder, who's no longer with Facebook, she left because of a difference of opinion about the direction they were going, um, they started tailoring uh, the advice that they had to each of the parties that were involved and getting more and more in, involved. So it, be, it went from sort of a, a think tanky NGO vibe to one where like we will bring in Democrats to work with the Democratic side and Republicans to work with the other side. And you know we're going to help you use as many of the Facebook tools as possible to, you know, in the end, boost engagement. And controversy also is really great for, for boosting engagement during election time in, you know, in all these countries, whether it's Poland or Germany or the Philippines or India, which is essentially, you know, in a lot of measures, the biggest market for the company. Right. Uh, Vernon, a lot of people will read this story and think, wow, how can Facebook uh, allow this? It basically is helping fuel the rise of uh, some misinformation or certainly uh, highly or more highly politicized types of rhetoric. At the same time, Facebook isn't doing anything wrong, is it? I mean, is it disseminating bad information on purpose? Or, you know, some people could say, well, it's just doing its job. It's helping clients use the the platform as well as they possibly can. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question, because what you have is in, let's say, a a place like the Philippines, where they came in and they offered their services to all the candidates. Um, But there was one candidate who uh, really embraced the technology. And once he was in power, um, Facebook again helped, you know, sort of riding the the coattails into the presidential palace, so to speak. Um, And they started broadcasting through Facebook channels, official events. And in a lot of countries, and we see this in India also, the campaign work then becomes this door into being part of the power structure in the country. And what this is is really a contrast to what Mark Zuckerberg has said in saying that the company is agnostic politically. Yeah. We're going to have to leave it there. Fascinating story. Thank you so much for joining us. Vernon Silver, projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg News. The Facebook team helps regimes that reach out and crack down. This is Bloomberg. Will big tech keep on rallying to the degree that they did this year? That is the question. And the answer, according to John Petridis, is no. He is managing director and portfolio manager for Point View Wealth Management in Summit, New Jersey. And he joins us now. John, uh, thanks so much for being with us. So what's going on here? Why do you think that uh, the FANG stocks, the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix and Google uh, shares are not going to have such a great year next year? Well, 
Thanks for having me on. I think that investors love to rally around a story stock. You know, in, in the late 60s, early 70s, it was the, uh, the Nifty 50. In the 80s, it was the go-go stocks. In the 90s, it was dot-com. Uh, in the early part of the, uh, the the turn of the century, it was the brick stocks, you know, the international stocks. And now, you know, FANG is all the rage. I mean, is there anything else we've spoken about more this year outside of Bitcoin than the FANG stocks? So I think investors have piled into these uh, these companies and I think valuations are starting to get stretched. And I don't think the downside risks are priced into the stocks at all. Well, John, I, I'm looking at you know the the sales, annual sales for Facebook, uh, right. $36.5 billion, And they got net income of $15 billion. Mm -hmm. You know any other company that does that kind of business? Maybe Amazon. How about so let's look at some of the other fang stocks. How about Amazon does something? Uh, no, know, no, no, uh, no, no, no. But Amazon does. I mean, you're talking a company that does yeah. thirty six and a half billion in sales so, and puts fifteen of it in their pocket when yeah, all no, is so, said and done. Right. So, so let me clarify. All all five of the fang stocks, and if you want to add Microsoft into that as well, they don't fit nice into the acronym. But Microsoft has, has boosted the, the the tech sector as well. Are fantastic companies. What I'm saying is, I think the market is pricing these companies that they could do no wrong, and that's where investors have to be careful of because every great investment is always a function of the price you pay for it. So I think Facebook and Google can be under significant regulatory pressure in 2018. I think the whole Russian interference with Facebook is a, a big red flag, and I don't think. Uh, any political risk or regulatory risk are priced into those stocks at all. So the companies are fantastic, but I think you could see discounts uh, priced into the stocks uh, because of uh, regulatory issues. Well, you know, I, I, everyone is excited about Apple uh, because of the new iPhone, but Apple's now a hundred eighty, eight hundred and fifty billion dollar company. You know, if you want a hundred percent return on Apple from here, you're gonna have a one point six trillion dollar company. They have to sell a lot of iPhones to do that, right? So you're getting up, you're pushing up against law of large numbers. Some people do think that it will be a trillion dollar uh, company. I should, almost said country uh, pretty right. soon. But but John, you know, I want to talk specifically about the regulatory issues. You, you pinpointed Amazon and Google in particular. Uh, can you just play out what some of those regulatory pressures would look like that would cause a stock swoon? Because we hear a lot about it, but I don't hear of any regulatory efforts that are currently being discussed in concrete terms on the Hill. And uh, I'm not sure what would do it to the stock. So, so, yeah, I think so. The regulatory issues, I think, are for Facebook and Google specifically because of the massive amount of data that they have on all of their users. And I think the the fact that it was disclosed that Russia was buying uh, ads on Facebook and using that uh, uh, along with uh, to, to manipulate to a degree the uh, the election results, I think, is um, uh, you know, could within the argument can be made within Congress that, that is a national security issue. So I think that if that's the case, what that does is it forces Google and Facebook to go back to the drawing board and tighten up uh, uh, their own practices, which will add to their own to their expenses and their costs. So my point behind all of that is I don't think that Google and Facebook go out of business. All I'm saying is that I think their stocks are overvalued at current levels and they're not pricing in any potential downside risk. And I think when investors fall in love with stocks like that, who, whose charts look fantastic, if you're looking backward, uh, could become a risky place in 2018. All right. So where is there value to be had? 
So I still like the financials, uh, despite the fact, again, looking backward over the last 18 months, the banks have done a fantastic job from a performance standpoint. You're nowhere near valuation, stamp, uh, valuation levels of where we were in 2005, 6, 7 during the apex of the dot-com bubble. And the fundamentals of the financials are, are fantastic, right? Interest rates continue to creep higher. You're in a, a government or a regulatory situation where there's deregulation going on. Uh, the bank's balance sheets are as healthy as they've been so, uh, uh, since World War II. So, uh, you know, I still, still think there's room to run in the financial sector. I also think, uh, you know, the sell-off in healthcare that we saw in, in October and September and even a little bit in November provides an opportunity. Healthcare uh, insurers, health, medical devices, pharmaceuticals. Yeah, so I, li- I, I like big pharma um, particularly. Uh, so if you look at where, um, you know, globally, again, thinking long-term, we're investors, not traders. So we're not thinking about next quarter. You know, as the global population grows and ages, the utilization of the healthcare system is only going to increase. So big pharma companies are sitting with a ton of cash. Um, they have the ability to reinvest in their pipeline and or do acquisitions to bolster their own pipeline. Uh, they, they usually pay out a big dividend and they buy back stocks. They, so I think there's a long-term story out there that uh, is being overly discounted by investors because there's fear of uh, regulation on drug prices. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but thanks very much uh, for enlightening us. Uh, John Patrice is Managing Director, Portfolio Manager for Point View Wealth Management. They are based in Summit, New Jersey, and uh, he was making the bear case uh, for those FANG stocks. He watches all of the information, whether it's the uh, average private work week, whether it's wage growth or even the conference board leading indicators, which we received today. But he also follows Christmas trees. Phil Orlando is the chief equity market strategist and head of client portfolio management at Federated Investors. I bet he thought you were joking when you said we were going to talk about Christmas trees. I'm not going <laughs> to not joking. It's a big business. No, it I is mean, a big business. And, and thank you for having me back on again. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. And, and let's talk Christmas trees then. That's my point. I wanted to ask you about Christmas trees because I know I heard about the shortage because this has to do with the economy in 2007, right. 2008. So, but you've done some work so on this. Let me, so I've got to give props to my buddies at uh, Evercore ISI. Oscar Slaughterback is the guy that runs this regular survey for them for the last 15 years. And the issue, the problem here is that it takes about eight to 10 years for a seedling to sort of grow into a mature tree but think about it 10 years ago we were starting we were going into the great recession so a lot of these smaller independent tree farms around the country canada whatever they said we don't have the money or we're, we we're, we cut back our planning we went out of business and so now 10 years later we've got a shortage of trees so uh, when ISI put out the the you know they do the survey over the four weeks of christmas the numbers, frankly, on a year-over-year basis didn't look particularly good, yet we've got a very bullish forecast for Christmas. So in my mind, I'm trying to say, okay, wait a second, one of the key things we look at is not working, yet I think Christmas is going to be really good. And then I sort of stumbled upon this 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 Great Recession thing that I think that the shortage of trees and the fact that prices have gone up, I think people are either doing without or they're, they're shifting over to artificial. Now, ISI survey doesn't capture artificial sales, so we don't know 
how much of that mix shift occurred. So I'm still sticking to my forecast that we're going to have a great Christmas, you know, based upon some of the indicators we're looking at. This could be the best Christmas since 2011 when uh, year-over-year Christmas sales were up like 6%. So we're, we're you know, we're going to have, I think, a pretty good year. 350 million real Christmas trees uh, currently growing on Christmas tree farms in the U.S. alone. So this isn't a tiny business. No, this is this is real. Business. Yeah. But again, because it takes about 10 years, that 350 million, you're going to chop down maybe 30, 35 million of them in a given year. All right. So as people chop down their trees and get ready for uh, for the holidays, I'm just wondering, you know, we talk to a lot of people. There seems to be some consensus forming, not as much as going into uh, going into this year. But uh, the consensus seems to be growth is pretty good. We're going to get a modest boost from the tax plan, right. not anything to write home about. The dollar will remain range bound, possibly go down. Uh, stocks in the U.S. will continue to do well, maybe not as well as this year, but will continue to do well. And uh, bonds might sell off, but it won't be a disorderly unwind. What's wrong about those consensus ideas? Anything? There, there, there's nothing wrong with them. I mean, basically, you're painting, by and large, a Goldilocks kind of an environment where uh, we think treasury yields will sort of grind up to 3% over the next year, year and a half. Stocks will grind up to 3,000 over the course of the next year or so. Uh, 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 GDP growth is, you know, we've been at a 3% run rate the last couple of quarters. We've got a 3.2% estimate for the fourth quarter. We've got a 3% estimate for next year. We're sort of back to trend line. It's all good as far as we can tell. Okay, so given that backdrop... What do you tell your clients with respect to active management? Sure. Because this Goldilocks scenario is great for indexing. Well, not necessarily, because there are aspects of this market that active management will be able to do a better job in. For example, um, I'm going to disagree with one of the elements of your analysis, which was the dollar. If the economy... Uh, which was growing at 1.5% last year and is now sort of at a 3% run rate now, continues at that pace, and that's our call. Uh, and the transition from from Yellen to Powell is successful, and, and the Fed continues to gradually remove accommodation. Uh, that combination of better economic growth, better corporate earnings growth, uh, a tighter monetary policy out of the Fed should result in a stronger dollar over time. So we went from dollar euro, I think we were 103 or so at the beginning of the year, topped out at about 122. We started to strengthen down about 117, 118. We seem to be temporarily going back the other way. I think we're going to we're going to catch a bid here uh, and we're going to get the dollar euro back into that, you know, 112, 115 neighborhood over the course of the next year. In that scenario, small cap stocks, um, stronger economic growth. Uh, the tax cuts, remember, small cap companies pay very high taxes, uh, stronger dollar, so that benefits uh, more of the, the the domestic-oriented smaller cap companies as opposed to the international companies. Small cap stocks ought to do well in that environment. That's an environment that active management really has an advantage in. The indexers, not so much. Uh, also, growth stocks, remember, large cap growth did much better than large cap value in the first part of the year. We've rotated right around Labor Day to a value trade. So we think the financials, the energies, the industrials, et cetera, those companies ought to catch a bid uh, relative to some of the growth stocks that did really well in the first seven or eight months of the year. So there are parts of the market 
that that ought to do well here, given the environment we've laid out, that that in our view should benefit active management rather than passive management. Phil, I would imagine you've racked up a number of miles this year, traveling all over the country, talking to various investor groups. Has the investor changed in the last decade? We talked about Christmas trees. Have investors matured to the point where they better understand the investing environment that you're in today? I, I, I thought you were going to say that they're going to be chopped down. I, I don't think so. I, I travel, you're right. I travel around the country talking to client groups all over the place, and people are still scared to death. Because they they uh, they're 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 furious with the nonsense that's going on in Washington, the stupidity in Washington. I think the single biggest mistake a lot of investors have made over the last year is allowing their political biases to influence their investment judgment. I mean, that's a huge deal. And then you know you flip on the TV and and you've got any number of of theoretically credible people saying Trump's an idiot. This tax plan's a disaster. It's not going to work. Uh, the stock markets are overvalued. You know, we're going to hell in a handbasket. The average person doesn't know that that's bad information and, and that, that we're in pretty good shape right now, as Lisa just articulated a moment ago, beautifully, and that we're grinding up towards a 3000 S and P over the next year or so. So we think you got to stick with it. That's a tough message to get across. Phil Orlando, thank you so much for being with us. Thank and you. Uh, good luck with your Christmas tree uh, business analytics. Uh, and, and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you, too. you. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management for Federated Investors. We always love having him. And, uh, you know, I never realized that it was that big of a business, to be honest, the whole Christmas tree uh, business. Uh, here to help us understand a little bit about the risks that uh, perhaps are in the financial world is Mike Bodson. He is the chief executive of the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. Mike, thank you very much for being with us. Tell people, what does the DTCC do? And then explain what is your systemic risk barometer? Uh, good morning. Uh DTCC is the, basically the central counterparty for the U.S. cash securities market, and we're also the central securities the depository for cash security markets. So in a nutshell, we process every cash trade done in the United States, every bond, stock, uh, treasury security, mortgage-backed security. So we do about 100 million transactions a day. We do about $1.5 quadrillion a year flows through us. Uh, so we're basically the, uh, uh, the processors of all transactions in the, the U.S. markets as well as some other ancillary businesses. Uh, our systemic uh, risk barometer is just something we started a few years ago where we go out and uh, survey our membership, uh, primarily U.S., but uh, internationally as well, uh, to get a gauge of where people are focused on from a systemic risk basis, what are the, uh, the leading issues. And from there, we build other thought leadership pieces. We've done thought leaderships on fintech, on cloud, on interconnectedness risk, and things along that, uh, that line. I found it interesting that an emerging worry among the people who you spoke with with respect to financial stability was fintech, financial technology, uh, in particular, its lack of regulation uh, with this idea that advancements have outpaced governance. Please explain. Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously fintech is 
something that's gotten a lot of focus on in the last few years as a disruptive technology and competitive force to financial market participants. But uh, as the competitive threat and competitive risk uh, has been better understood, I think people now are are focused on, well, what does it mean to the system itself? And what type of risk does it introduce? And that'll vary from fragmentation and changing the basic economic model to things like uh, cybersecurity, Uh, having small fintech companies who may not have the rigor uh, in terms of cyber over their product that you know the more established players may have, that could bring obviously a major risk if uh, they're connected to the ecosystem. So I think you know there's a variety of different ways to look at it, uh, but I think people have gotten comfortable with the thought of fintech can be a real positive force and don't want to stop innovation, but they don't want to open up the system to unknown or unanticipated risks that could bring down the entirety of the uh, of the financial markets. Mike, I'd be remiss if I didn't use the word blockchain in just about every conversation, but you are using the blockchain system for derivatives processing. Explain this. Sure. We have a uh, prototype being built. Uh, we hope to go live with it uh, next year, where we're working with IBM, Axoni, and R3 uh, to uh, replatform a product onto a distributed ledger. The platform is something called the Trade Information Warehouse. It is a central repository of information, uh, primarily about credit default swaps. Uh, uh, it's used by regulators to monitor the market. It's used by market participants uh, for payments and reconciliation purposes, but it's built on mainframe uh, technology. Uh, Given the nature of distributed ledger, blockchain, uh, and its ability to have one version of the truth that's shared amongst all participants, it seemed to be a natural uh, usage for blockchain. So we started this project this year, and as I said, we hope to roll it out uh, sometime uh, next year. It's very exciting to see an actual application on a wide uh, scale basis. Uh, we, you know, it'll be pretty much the first one in the U.S. Uh, securities market. Mike, how concerned are you about the blockchain or just in general about increases in financial technology and, frankly, a potential issuance of digital currency uh, undermining the DTCC's business model as a processor? Yeah, you know, look, when the blockchain first became uh, widely understood or widely uh, discussed, uh, we read a lot about how, you know, all of a sudden we would go to a uh, blockchain-based settlement system and uh, there would be no need for clearing and settlement. And the biggest clear and settler in the world is DTCC and we would disappear. And, you know, we kind of said, look, our business model will always evolve. And even using blockchain, there still is a role to be played by somebody who's going to be the central authority. They're not going to be open systems. They'll be closed systems. Uh, you still have governance needs and processing needs over things like smart contracts and nodes. How do you change uh, the programs, et cetera? So, you know, uh, we're not immune to competition. We're not immune to the world moving on. But rather than, you know, being scared of it, we've embraced it and become what we believe are thought leaders in the space. And, you know, it'll take a while for blockchain to be able to handle the volumes we do. Um, You know, one of the things that uh, we manage, as I said, we do 100 million transactions a day come in from the stock exchanges, for instance. We net that down to 3 million net movements of securities and cash, which is highly efficient and saves a lot of money and operational risk. All of a sudden, if you went back to a process where 100 million cash movements would happen to every day, that would not be anywhere near as efficient and be a lot riskier. So I think as the hype has simmered down and people understand the benefits of blockchain, but also uh, the cost, you know, you're having much more rational discussions as to, you know, how does it, how is it going to roll out? How is it going to impact the market and what benefits will it bring? 
Mike, we also have uh, heard a lot about um, the cleared derivatives and how uh, essentially cleared uh, derivatives have eliminated a lot of the risk to the financial system. Uh, did your survey touch on that at all and have risks migrated to the central clearinghouses themselves? The survey didn't touch on that per se. I mean, I think we, we looked at things like interconnectedness risk uh, and failure of a market participant. Um I mean, the risk hasn't disappeared. I mean, what happens with a CCP is you're concentrating the risk and managing it at a central point. So it's not like the risk has disappeared, but it went from a very bilateral basis, i.e. firm A exposed to firm B, uh, and in some ways very opaque because there was not transparency over those positions before, to now through both the uh, cleared OTCs as well as the business we do in terms of a trade repository, which gathers all the information about these transactions. You know, the transparency has increased, the concentration, and therefore the central management of the risk has increased. And, you know, it's made the system that much stronger. Mike Bodson, thank you so much for joining us. A truly fascinating discussion. Mike Bodson, Chief Executive Officer of the Depository Trust and Clearing Corp. DTCC. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.